Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that haphazardly dissects the past week's political news and wonders on inspection how it survived for quite so long with no heart or spine. This is episode 96, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and this week I'm really worried that if the government are bringing in the serious weapons bill, that angry teenagers will just find a way to kill each other with silly weapons like bananas, a clown's shoe or anything the foreign secretary says. Yes, London now apparently has a higher crime rate than New York, although that's presumably because New York's biggest sex offender is now based in Washington, D.C. Sorry, that is quite inaccurate of me. It's not actually a higher crime rate, it's a murder rate, as cities across the UK have seen a rise in teen violence involving weapons in something the Conservatives like to call, oh well, it'll only damage the Labour vote. More than 50 people have been killed in London already in 2018, something that even though a leaked report says it is, is not to do with falling police numbers. Or at least, that's what Amber Rudd, Home Secretary and a woman who looks like your mum's scary friend, you know, the one who, when you were a kid, would wait for your mum to leave the room and then tell you how she once had to kill a pig with her bare hands, that's what she says. Amber Rudd is partly right in that it's not just the massive reductions in police officers and police resources in the last eight years that have led to this, but also all the cuts to youth services, family services, welfare services and more. I mean, really, it's quite amazing that she's surprised children are stabbing each other when the only example the government give is to go round cutting things left, right and centre and then expecting to get away with it. Former spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia have recovered from the nasty nerve agent used against them in Salisbury, bringing up new conspiracy theories that actually whoever did the attack might have just been a bit shit at their job. The Porton Down Laboratory revealed that while it was likely to have been used by a Russian state actor, which I think means someone who just does most of the national TV dramas, like, say, you know, Russian Bill Nye, they said that they couldn't verify the precise source of the Novichok agent. While this doesn't mean it wasn't Russia, it does mean that once again, Foreign Secretary and 4,000 slugs in a trench coat, Boris Johnson, has been caught out as lying again after he said the scientists at Porton Down had definitely said it was Russia. Boris has, of course, handled this in his usual professional manner of acting like a child with cookies smeared around their face, denying they even know what a cookie is, and said that he never said those comments before making sure the Foreign Office deleted the tweets that say that he did, and pray that no one ever uses Google ever again to find all the interview footage where he definitely, definitely 
said it. I'm starting to wonder if Boris just dreamed that Port and Down Man had said that after eating too much ham before going to bed and is now very confused as to which bits he was actually awake for. Of course, Port and Down saying that they aren't sure if it's Russia doesn't mean it wasn't Russia and it doesn't mean it is Russia either, but what it does mean is that Boris's pants are on fire and that he and Labour leader Jeremy I Have Special Shoes for Gardening Corbyn are having a spat as to who is the biggest idiot. Boris says Corbyn is the Kremlin's useful idiot, a phrase that I assumed was what followed Johnson's name on his business cards. He said that about Jezza because he refused to unequivocally blame Russia for the poisoning, that no one has yet full evidence to use to unequivocally blame them with, yet even though they probably did it. Meanwhile, the Labour Party have said that Boris is the idiot because he's undermined the government's position by saying it was definitely Russia, when no one knows it was definitely Russia, even though it probably was Russia, but there's still a small chance that it wasn't. Got it? No. Good. Meanwhile, Moscow say it still wasn't them, which doesn't mean it wasn't them either, and the UK won't let them investigate because if it was them, this would be a sort of weird Dexter-type situation. And while all of this is happening, the victims now appear to be OK, which is good. However, because Sergei Skripal's house was put on lockdown after the attack, his two pet guinea pigs died of dehydration and his pet cat was found in a distressed state and then had to be put down. Now, I don't want to start any conspiracy theories of my own, but let's ignore Russia for a second. Has anyone questioned suspicious-looking local dogs? Was this a terrorist attack. Oh god, I'm really sorry, but I'm also not sorry. You see, it's just, the dad jokes just fall out of me now. I can't even help it. While Jewish people all over the world were celebrating their major annual holiday, one thing that didn't pass over, see what I did there, was accusations of anti-Semitism against the Labour Party. Hundreds of protesters campaigned outside Parliament a week ago and this week outside Labour HQ to call for zero tolerance for anti-Semitism in the party. Corbyn has responded by saying Labour has been too slow in dealing with cases of anti-Semitism, in a statement that proved his point as he made it more than two years after those accusations were initially brought up. Several papers criticised the Labour leader for attending a Passover cedar with a left-wing young Jewish group who apparently poke fun at establishment Judaism, you know, like young people of most religious groups do all of the time. Part of the critics' complaint was that Corbyn brought them a beetroot from his own garden when in fact it was a horseradish, and I can see how that could cause problems if you assume he's visiting Jews to present them with beets as opposed to embrace their uh, roots um, vegetables. I'm a dad now, these jokes will happen because I'm so tired. Facebook is going to contact users to let them know if their data was shared with political psychometrics company Cambridge Analytica, allowing people to find out if they were targeted by certain Brexit or Trump ad campaigns because they were susceptible to racist ideology, or if actually they weren't targeted but were just racists all along anyway. Senior figures from the company have been called to appear in front of Parliament as part of an inquiry into fake news and misinformation, and no one's sure if answers will be demanded or if MPs just want to take down some hot tips for the upcoming local elections. A new centrist party is being set up by the founder of Love Film because, you know, he's obviously just really into stuff that stopped being popular in 2009. The as yet unnamed party, although may I suggest the middle of the road party, the Paul Hollywoods, or perhaps the Liberal Democrats, apparently has access to £50 million of donations because what the UK needs right now is a party set up by a millionaire and backed by millionaires. They're aiming to break the mould of Westminster apparently, which is the sort of thing millionaires say because their cleaners are the ones that usually tackle mould and know that you can't break it, what you need is a mildew spray and some rubber gloves. This is the umpteenth centrist party that's supposedly been about to launch in the past couple of years to give a home to those who find Labour have gone too far to the left and I would say the Lib Dems have disappeared up their own arse but that's the sort of thing their last leader would have condemned. Will a new party affect Labour votes or Conservatives votes as is likely to do with our ever two-party first-past-the-post system? Well, here's an answer for you. Boring centrist dad and man whose name makes him sound like a limb thief, Nick Clegg, has said that he's not ruled out joining the new party so that means they'll likely just be propping up the Tories.
and legendary children's comic The Beano have issued a cease and desist letter to Slenderman's butler Jacob Rees-Mogg to stop masquerading as Dennis the Menace's enemy Walter the Softy. I don't think that's a fair comparison at all, as one is a cartoon caricature of an outdated stereotype who divides his class through petty plots and tricks, and the other is in the Beano. Hey, hey, Parpol Broads, the podcast is back in a weird sort of tired, slightly shorter form. Thank you all for sticking with it while I took two weeks off to try and adapt to parenthood. And I'm pleased to say that two weeks in of looking after my tiny baby daughter, she is doing brilliantly. And me and my wife are the tiredest human beings ever to the extent that I think tiredest is a word. Everything you read says that babies need to sleep 16 to 18 hours a day. And when we read that pre-baby, we thought, amazing, this should be easy. Except no one tells you that they like to sleep that amount but just in very short bursts, broken up with the sort of screaming that sounds a bit like someone is sacrificing an alpaca at 3am in the morning. Um, I'm doing these lovely gigs all month supporting uh, Frankie Boyle at Leicester Square Theatre and let me tell you, there is nothing more fun than being in front of 400 people and then forgetting what your joke is halfway through it. Oh... Good times. Good, good times. Um, thank you tons to Rob for the Stitcher review while this pod was away. Uh, that means there are now three whole reviews on Stitcher now. Yeah, three whole ones. Well, that is the magic number, so no more there, please. We'll leave it at that. I mean, uh, no, uh, more, please, but just maybe do 30 more reviews. So there's 33 there, double magic. Or, you know, 330 more reviews, so that would be 333 reviews, triple magic. Uh, that would be great. Um, also, the reviews on iTunes have dried up. And look, I know it's boring to do reviews. I know you get asked to review bloody everything now online. I had an email asking to review a petrol station that I've been to recently and if I'd recommend it to others. I mean, what? Hey guys, you know, if you're in need of petrol, why not go out of your way to visit the Shell Garage at the roundabout between the A12 and the M25 for a very unremarkable selection of snacks, a level of customer services that was so okay it's not worth mentioning, and some of that tasty, overpriced, world-polluting petrol that you can't get elsewhere except all of the other places you can get it. I mean, actually, what I should have done was just sort of recommend the station on TripAdvisor as perhaps a great place to see such sights as a lorry doing a 700-point turn because the slip road is too narrow and the driver was an idiot, and an unsightly pile of litter being pecked at by an equally unsightly pigeon, and then maybe the place will become so overrun with tourists no one will be able to buy petrol there ever again. Actually, that is a bit mean, but all I'm saying is that while reviewing that petrol station isn't important, the only way that this show can get boosted on iTunes or all of those pod places is with more reviews. So please, please spare two minutes and just say something nice. Um, Or even just something fine. Hit the five stars and then you can just say why this show is not as good as a petrol station and I'll be just as pleased. Um, Also, if you can donate to help this show uh, keep happening, that would also be amazing. This podcast is free and I do entirely plan to keep it that way to stop me from shouting my odd thoughts in the park at strangers instead but in order to justify spending more time researching stuff and getting good guests it very much helps me to be able to turn down other work to do this um so and i did try to find music played on a tiny violin for this bit but it turns out they're called violas and it's not the same um so if you can donate to the slightly dwindling patreon page uh, which is worrying and that's at patreon.com forward slash bro if you can give even one dollar a month that is a massive help um or if you can buy me a coffee at at Kofi, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro. Um, that would also be helpful. Or alternatively, spread the word about this show as the more listeners it gets, the higher the tiny chances that I might earn anything from the ads on it ever, ever. Because capitalism is a known evil, but hey, to defeat thine enemy, you must know them. So, you know, help me get money and I'll help take down capitalism with lots of sarcastic comments and rubbish dad jokes. That is, that's how it works, right? That's, yeah, guys? No? Well, look, if you do all of that, I might even just bring the admin jingle back next week. 
how, how's that? And um, the other bit of admin to say this week is if you're a newer listener, hello. And also don't forget to check out older episodes. Um, I'm briefly talking about all the grim youth murder stuff this week, but uh, if you go back to episode 91, I interviewed Bob Singer, who's a youth coach who's worked for over two decades with young people involved in gang crime, and that is far more informative, so please do have a listen to that, um, as it's sadly, very sadly, still very relevant. Um, The jokes on the episode aren't relevant, though, if that helps, uh, which it doesn't help. Um, Also, some very nice news that came in last minute today is for anyone who remembers my chat with Gracie at Against Borders for Children, um, they were campaigning for the Department of Education to stop collecting nationality and country of birth data on kids as part of the government's stringent immigration checks. Do you remember that? You should go back uh, and listen. What was it? Episode 58. Um, well, the Department of Education have just U-turned on that data collection policy today, which is really nice news. Yeah! I mean, I'm not saying it was to do with the very short 10-minute interview that we did on this podcast, but it probably was. It probably wasn't, but it probably was. Um, right, now back to some shitty news. Right, this week's show is not a very long one, as just working what to say in this bit took 40 minutes because it was interrupted by two nappy changes uh, one that my wife has now referred to as Shia Nam uh, because of the trauma she suffered since um, but there is a chat with actor and writer Marlon Solomon all about the anti-Semitism uh, in the Labour Party and in the news this week even though Ajipod have already done that this week the bastards with their high listenership and their bloody you know clever people anyway but I've done it my own way, so listen to this and be double informed. Um, Also, there's a little look at the rise in the murder rate, and surprisingly this week, there is no Brexit. Oh no, how nice is that? It's because Prime Minister and Ghost Train Extra Theresa May has been spending her Easter holidays doing a UK tour, which sounds like a shit gig to me. Bet there won't be any crowd pleasers, and it'll just be the same old playlist she's been doing for years, and they'll probably have support from sentient fogpatch David Davis trying and failing to blow his own trumpet. Anyway, before all of those things, there is, of course, a little short bit of this. The sugar tax has come into force this week, which means uh, I'm going to have to pay loads for my sweet ass. I mean, uh, manufacturers either have to cut the amount of sugar in their drinks or pay a levy. The more sugar in the drink, the higher the tax, which should mean that between Coca-Cola and Red Bull, the UK deficit should be cleared within a week. It was actually estimated that the sugar tax would bring in £500 million to the Treasury, but then several sneaky drinks companies cut the sugar in their drinks, so now it's reckoned to only be half of that. Boo! More than 94% of people in Britain exceeded the World Health Organization's recommendation of sugar intake last year. Um, I'm pretty sure I was 90% of that. But also, I mean, have you seen the weather? I mean, if we can't get through this bullshit with booze and muffins, how else are we meant to do it? Will the sugar tax work? Well, the Institute of Fiscal Studies says it may change how much sugar young people have, but mostly people who have a high sugar diet will just continue to do so and then just be more poor because of that. Great news. I mean, basically, my life is going to become worse. That's what I'm saying. Just imagine getting a massive sugar high and not being able to afford to go anywhere to burn it off. It does also uh, disproportionately affect poor people because healthy food with less sugar is more costly already. Have you ever tried to buy quinoa? No, of course not. It tastes like bits of people's teeth. But if you did, you know it wasn't cheap. Studies show the most likely people to be obese in the UK are those in the bottom 20% of earners. So by making them pay more for either the food they already have or even more for healthy grub, it doesn't really feel like the right way to drive some sort of healthy initiative. Unless, of course, this is part of the ongoing government plan to make people lose weight through starvation, in which case they'll be sorry when everyone saves up to just have energy drinks all week and then storms Parliament once they've stopped shaking and pooing funny. 
Mexico introduced a sugar tax in 2014, and by the end of 12 months, Mexicans were having 12% fewer sugary drinks, with the largest reduction being in poorer households. So you never know, it could make a difference. Either way, I'm concerned about all those poor dentists who are going to be losing patients in the bucket loads if it does work. Though, if they all gnash their teeth in anger together, they should be able to stay afloat by, you know, just treating each other. Anti-Semitism, when said with an American accent, sounds like it might be a kindly relative who guards all people who speak Semitic languages, but still insists on kissing them on the lips when they visit. But sadly, when not said in an American accent, anti-Semitism is a horrible genre of racism directed towards Jewish people that has depressingly been prevalent in society since the 11th century and anti-Semitism would definitely not approve of. Recently, it's reared its ugly head in UK politics as accusations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party have been rife, something that seems really at odds with Labour's mostly anti-racist stance, unlike the Conservatives who happily hire vans to drive round and tell people to fuck off home. Labour members such as Ken Livingston were suspended after he kept shouting Hitler a lot in a rare case of a politician whose later career would have done better if he'd been less honest. And various other members have been expelled or suspended for abuse, ranging from supporting anti-Semitic conspiracy theories all the way to full Holocaust denial. Something that I absolutely cannot understand, because why would you want to make up an event so horrific if it didn't happen? And the fact that that's where Denier's creative mind goes says quite a lot more about them than anyone else. It's like all those people who assume the anti-gun campaigners in the US are crisis actors. No, clearly not. I mean, you clearly don't know actors, because if they were crisis actors, they'd have already put it on their CV and be telling everyone they had a prominent speaking part. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has come under criticism for a Facebook comment he made in 2012 in support of an anti-Semitic mural, proving that some art is shit. Anyway, this led him to apologise and delete his Facebook account, which on the plus side means he might now not be so susceptible to the Vote Leave campaign's adverts. The biggest problem, and I say this as an openly mostly Corbyn fan, is that he has taken so long to condemn these accusations, if at all, that you can't help but feel that if back in 2015 when this has started to pop up, if he just dealt with it effectively then, ejecting certain members, that maybe now it wouldn't be such a problem. While I have Jewish heritage, uh, including a Russian Jewish great-great-grandmother who was once arrested for brewing her own alcohol like a total hero, I am not Jewish myself, or if I am, only really the sort of ish part. So aside from finding it pretty tricky to find anything humorous in this issue, as you could tell by the sadly gagless end of that last paragraph, I'm also not the right person to be telling you what is and isn't anti-Semitic. So I thought it best this week to speak to Marlon Solomon, an actor and writer who took his show Conspiracy Theory Elicit Sale, a show all about, well, conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism, to the Edinburgh Fringe last year and will be touring it around the UK later this year too. Marlon has written some excellent blogs about anti-Semitism on the left wing and uh, which have been going around Twitter quite a lot. And so Marlon kindly explained to me exactly what anti-Semitism is, what should be done about it within Labour and the important differences between being pro-Palestine and criticising Israel and then crossing the line or uh, wall to anti-Semitism. During this recording, uh, some idiot on the street outside decided to start up drilling work. I mean, I don't think it was like a random idiot. I think it was, you know, work people who've been hired, but it annoyed me, so they're an idiot. Um, I don't think you can hear it, but also it's all I've been able to hear for the last two hours. So I'm numb to it and now I really don't have a clue. Um, either way, I hope you find this chat with Marlon as informative as I did. Here's Marlon. It's probably, it's, I, I sort of feel like this seems an obvious one, but it's not to a lot of people. Um, what exactly is anti-Semitism? And do you think most people are kind of aware of what it, it constitutes anti-Semitism or is what, it, what is considered racist towards Jewish people? Um, I would say uh, people have a very 
rough idea. Most people have a rough idea of what anti-Semitism is, is just being people that don't like Jews. But what it actually is, is it's quite complex. It's anti-Semitism, it's an irrational fear or hatred of Jewish people. And it's quite an unusual form of prejudice. Um, as it kind of paints its victims out as being more powerful rather than inferior. Um, it exists in conspiracy theory about conspiracy theories about global conspiracy and financial control. And in that way, it's kind of a pseudo intellectual prejudice, quite a, da- a very dangerous one. But it kind of marks it out as being different, not better or worse, but just different to other forms of prejudice. Yeah, that's that is quite fascinating. You said because if you think about uh, sort of other other forms of racism, it's often about demeaning or belittling, uh, uh, you know, a, a group of people. But as you say, this is pretending that Jewish people are in charge of a lot of stuff or somehow uh, a threat to us in, in yeah. that way. Yes, it does, and it's and it, it's and the thing about anti-Semitism is that it's an ideology. It's a world view. It's a world view that encompasses like secret governments and missing documents and hidden power, and it's very very strange. Um, and it's why you will find it in so many conspiracy theories, because conspiracy theories are also, you know, about hidden power and secret governments and global control from a shadowy elite. So, yeah, you'll find major crossovers in the conspiracy movement and um, and traits of anti-Semitism. And do you think that's why some people might not? Because one of the things I've especially noticed in the past few weeks of news, especially on social media, of course, is people not... Uh, or assuming they're not being anti-Semitic when they are, and, and you know, uh, I suppose yeah. vice versa, but less so. But do you think that's where the confusion lies? Because they think they're perhaps being anti-elitist, but maybe, but they're not. Yeah. You know, is that where it crosses over? You know. Yes, it does, and you'll see it. I mean, it's 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 not. It's complex. You've got critiques of capitalism, which stray into the bounds of let's call it the Rothschilds. You've got. Um, I, one of my favourite things on social media is watching these people who, like, post a sentence denying that there's anti-Semitism, and by the time they finish the sentence, they've gone and said something anti-Semitic. <laughs> I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just saying that the Israel lobby controls the world. You know, it's, it, it, you see this all the time, and, it, it, and there is an awful amount of ignorance, um, which is a, pertaining, it's a particular problem on the left at the moment, is that people just don't know they're transmitting anti-Semitic messages. And there are also kind of, there is a problem with it being that with willful ignorance, whereby anyone who tries to say, actually, that's anti-Semitic, or, you know, you, if you say those kind of things, you might leave yourself open to an accusation of anti-Semitism. That kind of, if the conversation goes that way, it's taken that the person who's saying it, who's opposing it, is acting in bad faith, that they're lying. And so it becomes very, very difficult because it's so irrational. Um, just like um, a, a belief in a lot of conspiracy theories are irrational, they become unfalsifiable. So you cannot convince people. I mean, Budgie, uh, a mutual friend of ours, says you can't talk someone out of a position they didn't talk themselves into in the first place. <laughs> and it, bec- it, it becomes very, very difficult to um, to debunk the conspiracy theory or debunk the anti-Semitic trope because any any argument that you give 
to oppose it is taken as being, in essence, the, actually part of the conspiracy, that you're part of that, that you're just saying this to whatever, you know, the motivation may be to silence criticism of Israel or to, as it is on the left at the moment, to um, uh, critique Jeremy Corbyn. So it becomes very, very difficult. I do think there's been some progress made in the last few weeks, and I do think a lot of people have woken up to the fact that the left does have a bit of a problem with the Jews. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask. I was going to ask you a bit later, but something you brought up already is it, the, how much of it also is the kind of uh, the opposing the Israeli government. The confusion uh, some people seem to have between opposing the Israeli government and opposing Israel and the people of Israel. You know, they rather than the politics of it all. You know, how how much does that come into it? I think it's a major part of it, and it's something that needs talking about a lot more. Um, and it's very it's very very difficult to talk about. Um, Let's start with um, Jewish people. So 93% of British Jews say that Israel is part of their identity. Now, that doesn't mean that Jewish people um, are, um, don't oppose the Israeli government, particularly on the left, or, or, or critique the Israeli government themselves. They just have an attachment to it um, as it's the only Jewish country, and it came to being our... It's not a religious thing. I don't practice the religion myself, but it's just a... It came out of being through necessity post the pogroms of the Holocaust. And, you know, that's not up for grabs. So what you see, you know, we, we can't change that. But if you talk to us, generally we've got this a wide, rich vein of opinion and lots of critiques of Israel. But what we're seeing at the moment is that critiques of Israel aren't just about its government or its policies, it's demonizing those 93% of Jews who say that Israel is part of their identity. We're being attacked for that, no matter what our views are, whether we're opponents of Netanyahu's government, whether we're opponents of the occupation, whether we're opponents of the settlements, none of that matters. If you are one of those Jews who does count Israel as part of their self-identity, who doesn't identify as an anti-Zionist, who thinks that Jews should never have gone there, then you are a legitimate target for anti-racists. And that's why we've got a bit of a problem at the moment, I think. And it's something that needs talking about and flushing out into the open a bit more to see how we deal with this and move forward. Absolutely. I mean, and, and forgive me if this is a terrible comparison, but the uh, somebody I recently spoke to just visited Russia and was telling me how much they love the Russian people, but obviously, you know, and how many Russian people think Putin is awful. <laughs> but we, you know, currently in the UK, we've, we're saying that Russians are awful and they probably poison people. You I know. know. It's the same. There seems to be a similar yeah. thing in Israel where they say Israeli people are awful. Say, no, it's the government that's causing the problem or whatever. Um, and people yeah. can't separate the two, you know. <laughs> There is a lot of Russia, Russiophobia around at the moment. And, yeah, there is a problem with Israel when it's critiqued because it's not... You know, you can critique not just the Israeli government, you can critique, you know, Israeli society. You could critique, you know, parts of, you know, the, the history of Zionism. You could be a, you can be opposed to all that or critique so much of that without going anywhere near the bounds of saying anything anti-Semitic, but if you're, uh, there, there does seem to be a problem with separating these, the, the Israeli government from its people. Um, I go on a lot of left-wing forums. I consider myself part of the left, uh, as difficult as that is at the moment. Um, and yeah, I see rhetoric all the time, which is, um, where is no separation between the government and its people and a blanket term, the Zionists, which 
which I see compared to Nazis all the time. And if you actually break that down, they're saying that 60% of Jews in Britain, who they're the Jews that actually identify as Zionists, um, 93% of us count Israel as our self-identity, but that's not, you know, not like full-on, um, we don't label ourselves as Zionists. But still, you know, comparing us all to Nazis, saying that my mum's a Nazi because she's a Zionist, it's just, it's ridiculous. And it's, you know, I'm sorry, but it's anti-Semitic. And that's going way beyond the bounds of criticizing Israel, you know, of just of its policy, of its government, of its occupation, of its settlements. It's it's beyond that. And do you think? Um, and do you think because it, it, you know, worryingly, we, we, we've had a lot of anti-Semitism um, in the news at the moment in the UK, but also it seems to be rising across Europe in Hungary and Poland. Do you think this is a, a very dangerous resurgence at the moment, or do you think it's never gone away and we're just hearing about it more now because of the internet being how it is? No, I think I think things have definitely changed. There's a rise of nativism and far-right nationalism across Europe, which is bringing with it its anti-Semitism. I mean, anti-Semitism never went away, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, where there's always been a strong current of it. We're very blessed in Britain. We don't have a very big far-right, but we're alone in Europe uh, in terms of that, really. Far-right parties are much bigger. You know, we don't have Nazis walking down the street in Manchester. You will do, you know, marching in other countries in Germany and Central Europe too, you know, around Central Europe. And with, the, you know, you've, you've got the president of, of Hungary, you know, putting billboards about Soros all over the country with explicitly, you know, an anti-Semitic message contained within, um, blaming Jews for um, immigration and just going back to blaming them for terrorism and this is a resurgence of old European anti-Semitism because after the Second World War we did have a golden age as it were of anti-Semitism being pretty defunct to a certain extent because you know the Holocaust put a lot of people off (laughs) you know it it became a really big taboo and people realized that yeah this is this is a terrible terrible ideology and a prejudice that we need to ensure never rears its head again but that's a few generations ago now. This is a this is a new time, and we see it in Britain. We see it in it's still you know post Brexit. We see it in its nativist form, um, and we also see it uh, rearing its head on the left um, in different guises. So yeah, it's different. It's different. I mean, we it, it, I hope that Britain won't go the same way as Europe. But in in France and Sweden, Jewish people have been leaving to go to Israel. 5,000 left France because of various terrorist attacks. So it is a dangerous resurgence. There was an 85-year-old Holocaust survivor two weeks ago who was stabbed to death in France because she was Jewish. She survived the Holocaust. So I would say this is a very dangerous resurgence, and it's something that we all need to um, come together on and um, have a chat about what we're going to do about it, really. Yeah, definitely. That is really horrifying. I didn't know that about France. How that's horrific. Um, and and I suppose that that brings us to uh, sort of one of the reasons why I would talk to you this week. But uh, the, the the big question, I guess, is how prevalent do you think anti-Semitism is in in UK politics and in particular uh, the Labour Party, as we've heard uh, in the news so much over the past few weeks? I think it, it's, it, I think the best way to answer this is to just is, is to go stato. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
The, um, I'm going to use something, I think, from the, the, the Jewish, poli- the Institute of Jewish Policy Research, they did, and the CFT, they did some great research into this recently, published a report. Now, if you, in, in Britain, and in, in, in politics, you're just as much, there, there were, like, I think, about 3% of Britons with, who are hardcore anti-Jewish bigots. That's about right. And you're, you're just as likely to be a hardcore anti-Jewish bigot on the left as you are on the right. You know, it's... 13%, I think the survey found that 13% of people have uh, one anti-Semitic attitude, and that's right across the board. Um, but there are certain parts of um, the left which are in the Labour Party which have stronger uh, anti-Jewish feelings. I and mean, you can, you can, this was uncovered in this survey. So what he did was they asked people... Um, if they agreed with nine of these what is anti-Israel statements. Now, these weren't ordinary um, and uh, critiques of Israeli policy or its government. I'll, I'll read you some of them. It was, Israel is trying to wipe out Palestine, um, so genocide. Israel should be boycotted. There is too much control. Israel has too much control over global affairs. Israel is the cause of all the troubles and wars in the Middle East. These are very, very strong anti-Israel attitudes, and I'm not saying they're necessarily anti-Semitic, what it found was that the, the people who answered the survey and held all of the, there was nine of them, the people who held all nine of those anti-Israel attitudes, 49% of them agreed with the statement, Jews exploit the Holocaust for their own malicious purposes, for their own, uh, you know, Jews exploit the Holocaust victimhood. So there's a direct correlation between people with very, very strong anti-Israel views and anti-Semitic attitudes. And where will you find people with those very, very strong anti-Israel attitudes? You might find them, uh, you know, and it's just a caveat, you know, the vast majority of people that um, want justice for the Palestinians, well, I do as well, don't, aren't anti-Semitic. I'm not saying that at all. I'm talking about a minority of people. Um, and you will find those people on anti-Israel demonstrations, um, and you will... In the last two years, a lot of those kind of that hardcore has come into the Labour Party and um, have helped to foster and nurture an environment where anti-Semitic rhetoric can flourish and can come out. And you see this in statements that people are making, particularly around the Holocaust, because that's the most important thing, I think, that this survey found. So this is why we're seeing it on the left at the moment. We're seeing a lot of Holocaust abuse. A lot of people with that kind of attitude. And that's something that I think um, you'll find more of. Plus, as well, remember that the Labour Party has a huge mandate. It has 570,000 members. There are 70,000 members of the Conservative Party. And, you know, if you go on, um, like, say, Facebook forums, you'll see racism in Tory Facebook groups. You'll see loads of it. Most of it generally being uh, that kind of racism being xenophobic. Um, anti-Muslim, that kind of thing. You know, again, just a minority, but you'll see it. Whereas on the Labour forums, you will find um, anti-Jewish rhetoric, specifically, as opposed to other forms of racism. And I think that's, I think this survey kind of uncovers why that is. What is it about that? Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We'll be back with Marlon in a minute, but first... London has always been a bit on the murdery side, uh, what with Jack the Ripper and a place in Enfield called Shoot Up Hill. But according to recent statistics, the capital of England now has a higher murder rate than New York, the place people basically go to get murdered. I mean, they don't, but if they did, that's where they would, right? Maybe. Now, any true Londoner like myself would probably feel a little bit proud because, yeah, we're beating the Yanks at something, but it is obviously a rather disturbing statistic to hear about. But also, fuck you, America, go Brits! Sorry, I really can't help it. But as with all of this sort of stuff, none of these statistics are quite that straightforward. New York and London are often compared in crime because they both have roughly the same population size of a bit more than 8.5 million people, which is why when you get on the tube in London or the subway in New York, you generally think, oh, for fuck's sake, why don't you all just fuck off? The murder rate data, or murder data, as I like to call it and no one else does, is just from the last two months. In February, London had 15 killings, while New York had 11. And in March, London had 22, while New York were only one behind with 21. So that's a five-murder difference in a very short period of time. And for all we know, New Yorkers were just waiting till the end of March to get super violent, you know, in time for spring. I mean, for a start, in January, New York had 18 killings compared to London's eight. And it was January, and people were fucking miserable. So far this year, London is actually three murders less than New York, and last year it was a whole 174 dead bodies down. Actually, what these figures show is that London's murder rate has stayed pretty much the same since 2010, while New York's has been declining. Now, apparently, that's due to a number of methods, including police targeting gangs and repeat offenders, who are the ones causing most of the offences, while also police working more closely with communities where perhaps they weren't quite so keen on the popo beforehand. New York police have also used deadly force a lot less often and they're using stun guns instead, which I think just shoot out a picture of me looking real sexy. Um, I joke, but maybe they also do, but they don't. But what if they did? But despite this, lots of criminologists say actually none of this crime reduction stuff is to do with extra police presence in communities or any of that sensible sounding stuff whatsoever, but more to do with economic reasons. And the JFA Institute's studies say that interest rates, inflation and unemployment are far more likely to cause crime than any other factor. It's almost as if not being able to afford to live makes people do really bad stuff rather than starve to death. Weird. 
Looking back at London, though, while its overall murder rate is pretty low compared to worldwide, this recent increase from the past couple of months, if it does continue, it could show that actually things are getting pretty bad. While overall crime is falling, knife crime across the UK is getting higher and higher. London's figures are 140 knife attacks for every 100,000 people. So if you live in London and you know 100,000 people and only 113 of them have faced a knife attack, maybe stay in and enjoy Netflix a bit. The West Midlands have 56 knife crime attacks per 100,000 people and then Yorkshire and the Humber have 52. So why is this increase happening? Well, as everyone likes saying, there are a myriad of reasons, which is a lovely version of saying, oh, we've let too many things fuck up and now it's got really complicated. Part of the blame for the rise in knife crime and murder is pointed at police no longer using stop and search on account of the mainly unfairly targeting young black men, causing police to waste time and resources and not really catch anyone and generally make everyone hate the police. So all in all, it's probably not a great idea to start that again. It could also be, as a leaked Home Office report said, something that really makes you wonder how good the Home Office are at protecting anyone if they can't look after their own shit, said because police numbers have fallen by over 20,000 between 2009 and 2017. But not all areas with falling police numbers are experiencing knife crime surges, so that means Amber Rudd can pretend it isn't a thing as long as she doesn't look at the ones where it is a thing. The Sutton Trust announced this week that twice as many Sure Starts, children's and family centres were shut down than official figures have stated since 2010, meaning that families no longer have support with everything from parenting classes to language therapy and more. Studies on Sure Start centres showed that these places help families have less chaotic home lives and better relationships between children and parents, and now they've gone. Between 2010 and 2016, youth centres suffered cuts of 387 million, with 350 youth centres closed and 41,000 youth centre places gone. Oh, and several government policies are set to increase child poverty by 4%. Do you remember when Theresa May said she was all about helping jams? I'm not sure she knew the acronym meant just about managing families, and instead thought they'd just be fine in ever stickier situations. And, of course, the drugs trade has an effect uh, which could be dealt with by more relaxed laws on prohibition and that universities unfairly exclude students from working-class background or that youth unemployment is high and it's odd that the government is so confused as to what will be causing this rise in murders when they've basically written the recipe book and cooked up something really depressing. You know, like a sad murder lasagna or a violent massacre. I'm a dad. This is what I do. So is London more dangerous than New York. Well, New York is not that dangerous, and no, not yet, as it's only as dangerous now under Sadiq Khan as it was under sleeping bag full of trifle Boris Johnson when he was mayor, and it wasn't that important then. But if we really want to be better than New York, the capital and other UK cities need to work really hard to kill all the contributing factors, so the only thing kids will want to murder is, I don't know, a cup of tea or a pie. Or a sad murder lasagna, whatever... That was, I'm really tired. I don't, I don't, what is a sad murder lasagna? Why did I say that? I've got no idea, but I assume it is a multi-layered crime dish. Yeah, I'm finishing this bit on that. Yes, I am. You can't do anything about it. And now, back to Marlon. I mean, one of the things, because you you sort of briefly mentioned that it's been in the last two years, and what I wanted to ask, and perhaps, I mean, there are probably some obvious reasons as to why, but why is this a a particular problem now with with Corbyn, with the Corbyn leadership then, and why has it changed since, say, Ed Miliband was in charge, or Blair, or Brown, or any previous leadership? What is it that's happened in the last couple of years that's caused this? There were always, um, the left has always had uh, anti-Semitism. It, it has its own traditions and its origins. It was there under Miliband, it was there under Brown. It has come more into the mainstream. The, the Labour Party is now a huge political movement. It's the biggest left-wing movement in Europe. And 
Some people have joined the Labour Party to support Jeremy Corbyn, who have some, I'm sorry, but have some pretty funky ideas about Jews. I mean, you have people who join the Labour Party from the Socialist Workers' Party. If you look at what happened in Bristol the other night, so this was uh, when Tangam Debonair was summoned by her CLP to um, explain herself for attending the anti-Semitism demonstration uh, two weeks ago today. Now, she was summoned by her CLP and given a long list of demands where she had to explain herself. Now, running that CLP in Bristol West, there are people involved in that who were part of the Socialist Workers' Party, the International Socialists and stuff like that. Um, and those were areas of the radical left where, which did have an, a documented, provable anti-Semitism problem. And they have come into the Labour Party. And so, and with that, you are seeing anti-Semitic rhetoric coming out, you're seeing a very, very, um, uh, people with, let's say, a very high threshold for um, being around anti-Semitism and being able to look through it uh, for their own political, um, to suit their own politics. Um, yeah. Do you think any of the coverage of anti-Semitism with Labour, a lot of the, some of the criticism from, uh, you know, some of Corbyn's supporters has been saying that it is to smear him, it's been exaggerated to smear him, and then there was the story about him celebrating Passover with uh, the Judas group recently that was criticised by some papers as them not being a proper Jewish group and things, which had a lot of, um, that caused quite a lot of conversation online. Um, yes, is, it is. Is, is any of it exaggerated, or is this uh, is that just a kind of you know, way to dismiss the the problems. What, what's your views on that? I think that, the, you know, the, if you look at what the right, let's call, let's call it the right-wing press, separate separate egregious examples of the right-wing press. You know, if, if the Telegraph does a story, perhaps, or if, say, um, Guido Fawkes runs a story, I don't think that these people really care about anti-Semitism, and they do overreach. They did a story about Andrew Gwynn being in a Facebook group with anti-Semitism, and he'd never been active in it. This was the uh, the Telegraph thing the other day. He'd never been active. He's a Labour MP in the group. Do you know what I mean? He was added without his knowledge. It was just an absolute. It was it was a nothing story. And yet they are making. Some people are using it for their own political advantages. But far beyond that, I'm talking. I went to that demonstration. Anti and left anti-Semitism came into my life nearly two years ago, post when Livingston opened his mouth, and I'd never really seen anti-Semitism before. I'm Jewish, don't live in the Jewish community. Um, you know, it, it, it's really, it's profoundly affected Jewish people. And so, yeah, we went to, for some of us, we went down and we demonstrated because it meant a hell of a lot. And we have been demonised continually since then by pro-left media who are saying that we're just doing it to smear Corbyn, that our, our motivation isn't anti-Semitism, it's something else, whether it be to silence criticism of Israel or whether to um, attack Jeremy Corbyn. And it's far more than just some egregious examples of the right-wing press. This, it, the, the, the problem is, is that anybody who doesn't support Jeremy Corbyn, cannot be trusted on anti-Semitism. That is the vibe, and it's coming from the entire pro-Jeremy Corbyn commentary 
and media. And it's very, very harmful because, you know, any criticism, because Jeremy Corbyn gets flayed alive in the media all the time, whenever there's another attack on him, it's just instinctual to kind of close ranks. But unfortunately, with the demonstration from Jewish people uh, two weeks ago, I found that uh, some of the people, some of the high-profile pro-Corbyn commentators who should know better, who recognise there's a problem, refuse to... um, let's say, extend their hand over the divide of Jeremy Corbyn to show solidarity with Jewish people. And I think we still have a long way to go. It's not a smear. Jewish people aren't exaggerating anti-Semitism. Howard Jacobson the other day said that would be sacrilege. Mm. We don't, you know, you might, you might find somebody on social media gets accused of anti-Semitism. Uh, because they're criticising Israel. I'm sure that happens, you know. I've seen it happen. But that's not what this is about. This is about um, people people saying anti-Semitic things, associating with anti-Semitic people, and defending and justifying anti-Semitic statements. And, you know, if you're Jewish and you live in the left-wing world like I do, you know, in Chortland, Manchester, and all my mates are non-Jewish and they're all lefties, and my Facebook, my Facebook feed has got... You know, hundreds of people, most of them work in the arts. A couple of years ago, we started to notice anti-Semitism appearing on our Facebook feeds, put there by people that we knew. And this was very, very difficult. You know, we've, friendships have been dissolved. You know, jobs, I've known people whose jobs have been lost because um, they were complaining about anti-Semitism being shared around at work, and their boss took the side of the anti-Semite. You know, those people went down to that demonstration two weeks ago. We have legitimate grievances. And uh, sadly, and still now, we're still being demonized for those legitimate grievances. Um, And people really need to have a think about this. If they want to, you know, some people are saying they want an all-out war and they want to root anti-Semitism out and drive it out of the Labour Party. Well, you can't do that if you don't show solidarity with Jewish people who have legitimate grievances about left-wing anti-Semitism. And you mentioned earlier um, that you feel that movement has been made or progress has been made in the last few weeks. Um, yes. what, so first I was going to ask you what you think or what, what you think that is and, and what should Labour still be doing, what they could be doing better to tackle all of this? What is, you know, what, what solutions are there right now? Um, and then the progress has been made whereby, because most people, you know, the, most people in the Labour Party are not anti-Semitic at all. You know, most of them got loads of mates who are, who are in and around the Labour Party. It's not anti-Semitic at all. Um, but this isn't news to a lot of people. For Jewish people, we see, we read the Jewish press, we'll see every week via some Holocaust and I been suspended from the party. Most people don't see this. It's not on their radar. And now I think in the last couple of weeks, people have woke up to it and have gone, right, actually, this is, you know, even the Metin put out a statement saying this was a bigger problem than we thought it was. That's progress. That's great. Um, so, and, and, and I think that people are, you know, waking up. But what, there's still such a long way to go. There is still so much to do. What can they do to tackle it? Um, Jeremy Corbyn needs to come out and denounce the people who are saying that anti-Semitism is a smear, um, that basically Jews are lying about it for our own malicious purposes. He is yet to do that. And that's what the Jewish communal leadership asked him to do. Um, And he could do that. Then there are, you know, Labour now has a huge mandate 
over half a million people. And with that huge mandate comes a huge amount of responsibility, and I don't really think the party has taken that responsibility seriously. If you just have a look at the effects of the huge mandate, you have a plethora of Facebook forums called We Trust and Support Jeremy Corbyn or I Love Jeremy Corbyn and stuff like that. You don't have the same opposing thing on the Conservative Party. You only have 70,000 members. Now, some of those Facebook forums are really, really extreme, and anti-Semitism is awash on some of them. It's absolutely horrific. I mean, if you go on some of these forums, just type in the words Holocaust, Rothschild, Jew, anti-Semitism. Go and have a look for yourself. It's really bad. Now, you know, how difficult is it for Jeremy Corbyn and his office and his people to write down a list of 10 Facebook forums and say, take my name off that forum. You do not do this in my name. Send those people a message that they can't do that. It's not, this is not beyond the realms of possibility. There are lots and lots of things that they can do. They can start to, they can start to invest in proper, I think John Lansman has said this himself, start to work with other people, uh, other bodies who can educate people about what anti-Semitism is, its relationship to conspiracy theory, its history, how to critique capitalism without invoking the blooming Rothschilds and stuff like that. You know, there is stuff that they can do, but they, they have to be able to reach over the divide of the people that don't support Jeremy Corbyn, because a lot of the people who've been experiencing the anti-Semitism obviously don't support Jeremy Corbyn, you know, so there needs to be a, a reaching out to people on other in, in, on other sides of the Labour Party to try and help them sort this out, and hopefully there will be some meaningful dialogue. And I really do, you know, I really do think that this is hopefully not a, a knacker job, as we would say around here. You know, it's, it's something that um, can be we can make inroads into. I'm certainly not going to give up on it anyway. Sure. I mean, and it just doesn't make sense not to do it. And why wouldn't you want to increase your voting membership and be more open to more groups? It absolutely baffles me. One of the things I wanted to ask as a sort of somebody who's uh, kind of, you know, kind of uh, while I have uh, some Jewish heritage, I'm an outsider to all of this. And I I sort of briefly mentioned it before, but Jeremy Corbyn attending uh, Passover with the Judas group, some... Sources were saying that that was horrific and an insult, and some were saying, no, it's, you know, he was invited and it was a Jewish Passover event. Can you just explain to me what that was and was that a good or a bad thing? Because I'm genuinely baffled by it all. This this internal Jewish politics is so. It's so complicated. I'll tell you what, it was so funny for Jewish people last week watching like the main the main news be about Passover seders and meals and horseradish and it was you know part of it was really funny and part of it was quite upsetting as well see all over the news. Um it was a very, very canny move actually by Jeremy Corbyn and his office to, for him to attend that Seder. Um now there's nothing wrong with Jeremy Corbyn going to meet those Jews in Judas at all. They consider themselves part of the radical left and they don't have a blanket policy of denying anti-Semitism at all. Um, they are Jeremy Corbyn supporters. But um, Jewish people weren't, if you speak to Jewish people, particularly around the left, we weren't angry with Jeremy Corbyn for going, I can only speak to, for myself and a few of the Jewish people that I know. But I'll stop saying we. <laughs> it's quite arrogant. But yeah, um, you know, I wouldn't have any problem 
with Jeremy Corbyn going to meet Judas? Absolutely not. Why would I? Um, you know, I think they're quite funny. I quite like a lot of them, you know? Um, put out some really good stuff. But at the time he did that, he was issued with one request from the, the Jewish Leadership Council and the Board of Deputies. Stop, denounce your supporters who are saying that we're lying about anti-Semitism. Do this. He didn't respond. Um, because what happened was is that, I think, I think it happened like this, we demonstrated against anti-Semitism. All of the, you know, the pro-Corbyn Twitter sphere and all of his blogs and the mouthpieces um, for Corbynism all completely laid into the demonstrators, said that we were liars, Trump supporters, Tories, because one guy, Ian Paisley, uh, turned up from the DUP. Like, we had any control over that. It was in Parliament. So, yeah, so then the, the, the said, no, this isn't right. So the Jewish communal leadership said, no, denounce those people who were saying that we're lying and doing it in your name. Now, Jeremy Corbyn refused to respond to that. And seven days later, when he went to Judas, Judas had, a few days earlier, written a blog, which was a rebuke to the Jewish people who demonstrated. So Judas wrote a blog, and they gave a message to the people going out to demonstrate against anti-Semitism, and it said, enough is enough, fuck you all. all right, now, Judas had, said, had written that a few days before Jeremy Corbyn went to meet him. So, given that Mr. Corbyn didn't respond to the request to stop, you know, to denounce those people who were calling us liars, and then went to a Seder with a tiny group of Jews who had told the rest of the community to go fuck themselves, Jewish people had a right to go, hang on a minute. You know what I mean? You know, that's not right. We have a legitimate grievance there, but that doesn't mean that we are saying that Judas are bad Jews. I've got, I've got time for them. But we were kind of censured then into not criticising Judas or it would seem like we were being, you know, saying that they were bad Jews. We weren't at all. This was completely distorted by the press. And obviously the, the, the egregious side of the right-wing press, like Guido Fawkes and stuff like that, they made this much worse. Um, you know, they soaked all this as well. So Jews are really, really caught in the middle. They've been kind of played um, in our community, being batted back and forth. So it was very, very difficult. So, yeah, I think it's important to understand the, the criticism level that Judas was not for what or who they are, just because they told the people, the Jews, with legitimate grievances, who went down to demonstrate outside Parliament, they told us to go fuck ourselves. So got, I think I've got a right to criticise them, considering they told me to go fuck myself. <laughs> you know, pretty reasonable, wouldn't you say? <laughs> definitely, definitely. That's uh, no. It's, it's just it's very nice to have someone explain it clearly because, as I said, uh, you know, I think it became quite confusing for a lot of uh, outsiders. Yeah. You know, um, all of that's been fascinating. Thank you very much for uh, chatting to me. Uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, apart from yourself and uh, your blogs, which I very much enjoy, and your Twitter, um, who else would you recommend listeners um, follow? for information on tackling anti-Semitism and well-informed reporting on Jewish issues and things like that? What, what are your go-to uh, either tweeters or, or journalists, whatever? Um, I would say yeah, the CST, who are the government-funded body who deal with anti-Semitic incidents, anti-Semitic attacks, and publish reports on anti-Semitic attitudes. They're absolutely brilliant. Follow them. That's the Community Security Trust. They're fantastic. Um, follow them. Hope Not Hate, do some good stuff too, a general anti-fascism, and um, individual people 
um, on Twitter who are great. I mean, you can follow the Jewish press. I mean, it's you know the politics are um, not to everyone's taste necessarily. To you know, but you will find out what's if you want to know what's going on in the Jewish community and what attitudes are like. You know, you just read the Jewish press. And that keeps close tabs on what's going on anti-Semitism-wise. That's the Jewish Chronicle and the Jewish News. You don't have to agree with all of the politics of a newspaper to read it. Thanks to Marlon for having time to chat with me. Marlon can be found on Twitter at SuperGutman, uh, that's spelt as it sounds, and his blog is at marlonsolomon.wordpress.com. Marlon's show Conspiracy Theory, A Lizard's Tale, a dark comedy show about conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism, will hopefully be on tour soon, so do keep an eye out for that. And Marlon does take bookings for it as well, should you like a performance of the show for your workplace, local venue, or um, I'm not sure where else, wedding, funeral, kids party? Probably not those ones. But it looks like it's an absolutely fantastic show, so do contact him if you would like to see it or book it. Um, We have discussed Israel several times in that chat and at some point in the future I would like to interview someone about that and the horrific violence from Israeli forces on the Palestinians that's been happening again recently so if you do know of good people to chat to about that totally uncomplicated subject uh, then please let me know um, also do listen to this week's Agitpod podcast too as they do discuss the anti-Semitism thing brilliantly as well uh, with Michael Segalov from Huck magazine and David Schneider and it's a fascinating and informative chat too damn damn they're more listened to podcasts um, I've got some nice guests planned and hopefully um, a pal of mine for the Big 100 episode in a few weeks time too but as always and I've written that in caps uh, but you can't see that so I'll just say it like it's in caps as always please send me recommendations Is it, it probably should be more shouty shouldn't it as always please send me recommendations of people you'd like me to interview or subjects you'd like me to find someone to interview about. And you can send all of those to the usual addresses um, or some unusual ones, if you like, like, say, 12 at East Bevan, Winkle Bob Avenue, Bishop's Wangford, postcode AAARGH. I mean, it won't get to me if you send it there, but imagine the fun it'll cause your local post office. So, so much fun. Um, and that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Uh, a slightly brief one. Hopefully we'll be back to normal running time in a couple of weeks. Uh, many thanks to your ears. You can have them back now as I've run out of places to put them and my neighbours have noticed and they're calling the police. Please do review the show on iTunes or Stitcher or maybe even just go into your local petrol station and shout Partly Political Broadcast five stars, you know, just for my sake. And that bit wasn't even written in caps. Um, if you can donate to the Patreon or Kofi, I will be your best friend forever. And please do just tell the people you know and people you don't know to have a listen though if it is the latter do it in a nice way you know don't just walk into the petrol station they're in and scare them by shouting Parley Political Broadcast five stars as you may get in trouble thank you to Acast for hosting this goddamn thing and to my brother the last skeptic for all of the musics even though he's about to go to LA for three months so actually screw him the jammy bastard this will be back next week if there is a next week as while recording this week's show lymphadenopathy with a face and US President Donald Trump said he will make a decision on Syria within the next 48 hours and all I can think of is no, not you. No one wanted you to fix this. I mean, sure, Assad needs to be dealt with, but not not by you. It's sort of a bit like finally going into hospital to have a dangerous tumour removed, only to find it's being done by a blindfolded dog with forks for arms. So anyway, good luck, everyone. Maybe see you next week? Bye! 
This week's show was brought to you by Amber Rudd Security Force. Do you need protection and defence in your home? Amber Rudd Security Force will make sure you have a considerable amount less security than you had before and then tell you to quit crying as you're unable to stop people walking out of your open door with all of your stuff. Amber Rudd Security Force. The best defence is none at all. Like, really, barely any. Maybe just a beware dog sign, but, you know, one of those funny ones that's got a chihuahua on it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.